0: Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts, follow hashtag Ask the geographer on Twitter for the latest updates. On September 2017, the biggest storm in Caribbean history, Hurricane Maria, struck Puerto Rico, causing 30 billion US dollars in damage. But what happened after the storm had passed? In this podcast, we're meeting Dr. Gemma Sue to find out about her research with 16 Puerto Rican families to discover how they recovered from the hurricane and its long-term and often hidden impacts. We'll discuss how this research was turned into a 20-page graphic novella to tell the story of a fictional family based upon these experiences. So Gemma, can you tell me about Hurricane Maria that happened in Puerto Rico in 2017?
1: Yes, so Hurricane Maria hit many different islands in the Caribbean and it hit Puerto Rico in particular on September 20th 2017 and it was a category 4 storm which is you know it's a it's a very strong storm and it was it was called the biggest storm in Caribbean history what the media was reporting and it impacted on the entire island um, so soon after the hurricane the news reporting and people who were living there were saying that all of the electricity on the island had um, cut off and actually It was many, many months before the electricity was was turned back on in, in lots of parts of the island, up to a year in some parts.
0: And so what happened when the storm passed then? How did people start to recover from that? Well, it really depends
1: on who you are, what what type of socio-economic status, what what type of money you have, what financial resources you have, how much support you have from government, how much of a social network you have, where you're physically, geographically located, because the impact of the storm was so different depending on where you were. So the, the community where I was working was right in the middle of a lake, a river and the ocean. So physically there was a lot of flooding there. And then on top of that they were very poor or low income families. So the way that those types of families experience recovery is very very different, a lot slower and more difficult I would argue than people who are living in the capital San Juan. Mm-hmm. You have higher incomes, there's a lot more investment from the government there. So it really depends on um, the type of family we're talking about. And even within communities, you'll find that the levels of recovery are so very different. If you have a family that has an elderly couple, they're going to recover a lot slower because they might have the less physically able to have lower incomes than a family with adults who are working, for example. So it was very uneven. And that's, that's something that a lot of the media overlooks, really, is how it's so different depending on who you talk to.
0: So, other broader issues then with how popular media represents experiences of people in place, especially the idea of being disaster victims or people being from developing countries
1: it's it's a bit of a pet annoyance for me to be honest is, is how the media portrays people who who've experienced disasters so if you think about news reports or fundraising campaigns or in films um The way that they portray or talk about or create characters about people who've living in um, disaster affected areas, it's always that take away, they take away personality, they take away identity. We often don't find out what are people's names, what are their personalities, what are their histories. You know, we don't even hear from them. Often you'll just hear the news reporter filming them and talking about them and If we do hear from the people who've been affected by disasters, it's often the same types of images, it's the raw suffering, the the distress, the pain, people crying, the raw emotion at the very beginning, soon after the disaster. And then what happens is, it's like the news reporters, the cameras, the media just falls off the face of the earth and they leave because they're not interested anymore when when the humanitarian organisations have left, when there isn't that circus around handing out food and shelter and water, but actually... I think it's really important that the cameras remain or reporters remain and start talking about the long-term struggles and, and hidden experiences of people when when they go through a disaster because they're just as important and that is that is when people need a, a lot of support um, or more understanding because we know a lot about humanitarian relief and shelter, temporary shelters, etc., but not about how people experience it in the long term, which I think is important
0: so how does a graphic novel and the kind of medium of illustration work differently then to these representations well
1: i read i read a lot of graphic novels just out of enjoyment really and over the years one thing i have found is that graphic illustration or the way that stories are told through illustrations is just fundamentally different to an image or the way that the news reports disasters or even the way that academics talk about people in disaster affected areas because you're able to zoom in and create these rounded characters these rounded personalities and we can we can Often in graphic novels, we'll focus on a protagonist, one, one main character, and you can, you can really develop their identity and really hone in on their personal experiences and their journeys, be it being affected by a disaster or any type of scenario. That's the real beauty of a graphic illustration. So, that's what I think is often missing in academia and popular media so that's the main thing i thought was the real benefit of graphic illustration is to create these rounded characters and to also take the time to illustrate or talk about these really hidden some might call boring ways that people experience disasters so you'll see in the in the graphic novel that the fact that women don't have electricity means that they can't clean their clothes or they can't refrigerate food or you know, they, they have to look after the children for for longer during the day in the house because the children can't play outside because there's no light. So all of this you often don't hear about in mainstream media uh, and even in academia. But if you put it into a, a beautiful picture, it, it, it comes to life. You know, it, it's, um, it engages you. And then one final point is that graphic illustration, it allows you to... Really communicate and talk about complex ideas, but in very engaging ways. So you're able to, like, to reduce theory that academics might talk about for pages and pages. And in like, just a page of a few illustrations, you can really get across to the reader what you're talking about. So
0: the characters in the novel, um, were they based on real-life people then?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So the characters, they're, they're, it's a fictional family and this is something I was thinking about at the beginning, should I just base it on one family that I spoke to? Because there's 16 families that I followed for the year. I thought, should I just pick one family? And I thought, actually, no, I need to draw from all the different families and illustrate the shared experiences. Because you'll speak to families, and they're so very, very different, the, the, the makeup, the social profile, like men, women, how many children. But they're still shared experiences. So I created a fictional family to allow me to illustrate those different experiences but saying that I wanted to make sure that a woman was the main character because one I spoke to a lot of women but also I found that the experiences of women were in some ways a lot more difficult than for men because of having to take her domestic duties and while also perhaps having to maintain a a business at home making cakes for example is one of the examples I used so that's what I I wanted to make sure is that I had a woman I focused on a woman in particular so that story came through but then you could it's actually a nuclear family the husband the wife the two kids the boy and the girl because I wanted to show the relationship between the mother and the children but also the relationship between the man and his partner man the woman in a, in, a, in a relationship and how that can become strained. If I was to do it again, if I'm completely honest, I would have an I would probably maybe focus on an, an older couple maybe in the 60s, 70s because again we don't hear a lot about the elderly mm. in in disaster media, and also the experience of the elderly can be really, really problematic because they're kind of left out in many ways of uh, response and recovery.
0: As a whole then, uh, elderly, some of the most vulnerable people in a disaster situation? Yeah, there is research on
1: this, but talking from this particular research project in Puerto Rico, the elderly, if they were living on their own, say they didn't have family members living with them who were younger and healthy and fit, often they weren't able to access humanitarian aid, so the relief trucks were just... They'd arrive at the community and park at the top of the community and then start giving out food and water aid. But a lot of the the older people who weren't as mobile, they couldn't make it to pick up the aid, so they'd rely on their neighbours or distant family members so if they didn't have that social network, they were left out. And also they have lower incomes. They'll be on a a pension, and that'll be a low-income pension. So these are just very, uh, you might think of them really, really subtle ways that people definitely experience disasters, but you'll find that they can have huge impacts if people aren't accessing humanitarian aid, the long-term impacts of that, because maybe they're having to fork out their own money still to cover food costs because they're not accessing that humanitarian aid, so the the long-term impacts will drain, will become a drain on them. And another thing is that temporary shelters are often not great for the elderly if they're, they're not comfortable, for example. So we had... There was one man I spoke to and he was 70 and he was sleeping in his car for four months because he didn't want to leave his home and he didn't want to go to the temporary shelters that were there and he didn't want to go and and migrate and leave the country to stay with family in the USA. So he stayed in a car for three months and he ended up getting uh, really damaging in his his veins and his legs. All these really little things, but they have a huge impact depending on your age or your gender.
0: So do you hope that the knowledge of everyday life in disaster and the consequent recovery that you've depicted in the novel how do you hope that that will be used by stakeholders like governments and NGOs to kind of further assist how they assist people in that recovery?
1: That's a really difficult question and uh, yeah I struggle with that myself and it's a it's a it's a frustration but I think there's a real need for NGOs well you know NGOs are, can be very good at this because they're often working at the the ground level so to speak uh, understanding how families experience disasters and how there are different needs that they have after a disaster but the way that families are assisted in order to recover is still really I, I think it's it's too too simplistic so families might be given that first of all you'll find across the world, not just in Puerto Rico, you'll have NGOs or government agencies, they'll go out, they'll look at the house, they'll say how much damage has there been to the house? Is there a hurricane, is the roof blown off? Is there is there flood damage? You know, so we'll have to knock down the house and rebuild it. But in actual fact, if you speak to families, often they'll say, We we lost our furniture, we lost our T V, we lost our fridges, you know really material items or we lost the curtains, we lost the um, armchairs and things like that. And that makes a huge difference to people's everyday lives. Just being able to have a sofa with TV to watch, to be able to relax, socialise with families. So I think these different organisations working on recovery, they need to acknowledge that you can't just give a family a new roof or give them money to rebuild a wall. You need to be able to assist them in recovering those material things like sofas, because that's what makes a home and that's what makes people feel comfortable. So you, families were were being given financial support from the federal government, and they were they were told you have to spend this on the physical reconstruction of the house. But you find in those families that were actually buying sofas and tvs and, and curtains and paint before that because they felt so uncomfortable and disconnected from the house because they didn't have the comforts so i think these different organizations need to acknowledge that what people mean when they say we want to recover it doesn't just mean a physical structure they want to recover their lives that's a, a first one it's a, a, a second point is that this is a problem in puerto rico but it I mean, you'll see this all around the world after disaster. Many families don't have the official documents to say that they own their house, that they this is a, this is legally their own home and that they, they, they pay for this house and it's their house. So what happens is the government agency will go around and say, you can't prove that you own this house, you don't have the documents, so we won't give you the money, even though families will live in that house for decades. So I think there needs to be an awareness or a complete change in how agencies give out financial support. There needs to be recognition that not often people can't prove that they've lived in the house for decades because that's not the way that um, home ownership is is passed over or that maybe the person who owns the house has died and they've lost the documents. So a lot of 50% of the families I spoke to in the community, they didn't get that financial support because they didn't have that piece of paper, even though they lived there for decades. So, I mean, they're, that's just two, but there's there's plenty of room to, for these different organisations to improve in terms of recovery.
0: Um, so how have your students responded to these graphic novels or people that you've shared them with, maybe in a UK context? Um, yeah, I sound
1: really egotistical now, but it's it's gone really well, actually. I've been really pleasantly surprised. So I went into a couple of schools in Manchester High Schools, was helping a geography teacher, facilitating a class with key stage five students and it went really well I think the beauty of not just this graphic novel but if you were to make a graphic novel about your own research or read them you all different ages can read it I could take this probably to a, a 10 year old and they can still Learn something from it. Mm. But if you could take it to undergraduate students, master's students, which I have done as well, and they will still apply the different concepts or theories or ideas that they have about. Poverty, vulnerability, disasters, the Caribbean and take those ideas and be able to understand and, and digest and translate those pictures and take what they already know from it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been good so far. Master students as well, they, they um I think it was nice to have a break from just reading journal articles because I can become a bit tedious. And I think in academia and teaching there's a, there is a shift towards more visual tools for teaching and you know recognition that you don't have to just sit there and read block text and you'll see that there's a lot of other researchers they're using graphic illustrations to talk about their own research. I mean the bottom line is that from primary school to high school A-levels undergraduate masters you absolutely can use these types of tools and across the board people have been really open to it
0: and um, so can you tell me about the process of producing the graphic novel how did you work with the illustrator and develop the characters
1: that was more difficult than i was actually expecting so i thought i'll just sit there write the script write the characters you know and then pass it over to the illustrator and he'll draw it but that's just absolutely not what happened I would write up the script, and the way I'd write it is each box, if you look at a graphic novel, you call each box a panel, and I would describe what's going on in each panel, what the dialogue is, what's happening visually, and what's the inner dialogue of the main character, Maria. And then the illustrator would take it, and think about how that would work visually so it became this back and forth of actually Gemma no that doesn't work you've got way too much dialogue the angles you're using it's really repetitive you need to be able to tell the story through not just through text you're using images so the beauty of working with John who's fantastic illustrator is that he knows how to tell stories visually, and he'd really reduce the amount of text. So I'm all about text and writing and words, whereas he's visual. So I would probably have some dialogue about Natalia, the character, was feeling really bad today. Da-da-da-da-da. But he'd say, just do that in a facial expression. We we broke it up into chunks, so. I went to Puerto Rico five times and after each visit, I'd write up like four pages and then it that was the process. Next time I go, write up four pages and then we'd we'd stitch it together. And it, it was really difficult in the beginning, to be honest, but then it got a lot easier at the end. But you have to work with an illustrator who, one really knows how to tell stories visually. And two, you have to make sure that the illustrators is aware that you're not just telling a beautiful story, you're telling a piece of research. So the voice and the, the, the research findings are not being lost through the drawings. And that was kind of a bit of a, I wouldn't say battle, that sounds a bit like archaic, but we disagree quite a bit because John wanted to lose Parts of the story where I say no, that's really important actually because it's got the gender element to it, and you, we need to make sure that comes through. But it's just, it's just back and forth. Harder than writing a journal article, if I'm completely honest. A lot harder, especially because you're you're creating characters, and when you draw them, they come to life. You you see these people that you created, and then when you go back to Puerto Rico and say what do you think about this? Am I doing this right? The people in Puerto Rico say, oh, "Actually, you've got that completely wrong, to be honest. Uh, we wouldn't use that dialogue or, you no, know, the, the, the way that you've drawn the room doesn't, doesn't really look quite right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a long process, but really, really rewarding. Like I said before, I went to the families and said, what do you think about this? And got feedback on, on the script. And in the very beginning, you know, the people I spoke to were like, Yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. But over time when when I went back on the third, fourth, fifth time, people felt more comfortable to say, actually, saying it now, I feel more comfortable with you. You need to change this, this is this isn't quite right. So that building up of, of rapport and, and, and confidence and trust between people meant that I was getting you know really honest feedback about what I was doing.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to download the novella that we've discussed in today's podcast, you can do so by visiting rgs.org forward slash schools. You'll also find a selection of our latest resources and updates about upcoming events.